Go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me just mention one more thing. This coming Wednesday, uh, we're going to continue our study on the life of C.S. Lewis in this place. So this is something we started last week. We're going to announce it one more time this week. We had a great turnout last week. And let me tell you, the guy that's teaching this class, Mike Vogt, is a fantastic teacher. And so if you have that margin, you will not be sad. You will not be disappointed that you're able to show up to that class. So, so come. We've got plenty of space still. We meet right here in this room, 6.30 p.m. this Wednesday, talking about the life and writings of C.S. Lewis. Well, last week, Michael easily began our study in the book of Revelation uh, he did a fantastic job. If you weren't here, uh, you can find that online, either his Brentwood message or his uh, Franklin message. Both of those are online. They were, they were essentially the same. And I want to reread to you the verse that he ended on last week. And uh, if you have your, your Bible open, you can go ahead and read along with me there. Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1, here's where we landed. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then Michael, at the end of the service, gave us a little bit of a teaser. He said, you know, we're going to be walking through these first four chapters of this book over the next 12 weeks or so, and it will be interesting to see what happens in your life. Because if you take this verse seriously, which we do, we believe that there is some kind of blessing in store. And of course, we don't go down the prosperity gospel path to say, yeah, if you obey these things, you know, you're going to be instantly wealthy or all your troubles are going to go away. That's not what Scripture teaches. But what Scripture does teach is there is a blessing to hearing, reading, and then heeding or putting into practice the things that we're going to be talking about over the next 12 weeks. And I can't wait to see what God does. We'll, we'll have a time at the end of the series where we'll talk about it. We'll actually ask you if you want to share, hey, what is the way that God blessed you in these last 12 weeks as we walked through this journey? Some of you will have remarkable things to say. Uh, some of you will talk about blessing that it may or may not be material. Some of you will talk about blessing that God took something hard in your life and he worked it to good, which is what he's in the business of doing. And I just can't wait to hear from you as we walk through this. So with that in mind, I think it's fascinating how John begins the letter from there, starting in verse 4. And I would like us to read it. In fact, I'll read it to you, but I want you to be a part by standing. So if you will, stand up. We don't always stand, but honestly, I thought, I can't read this particular passage with us sitting down. I think you'll see what I mean when we get into it. So I will read for us our text for this morning, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. You know, when you come across a passage of Scripture like this particular one, I hope there's a sense of, of something different 
a sense of awe that may settle over you a little bit. While I was preparing this message, uh, I I kept looking at the screensaver on my computer, and and we're going to go ahead and put an image of it on on the screen. It's actually the wallpaper, not the screensaver. I get those mixed up sometimes. Um, But for those of you that work on Macs, that's really recognizable for you. And and I was actually told there is a new operating system that I should be upgrading to right now, but it has a different picture. I don't know that I want to go there, but anyway, this is what I was staring at. Now, this is the half dome at Yosemite. Never been there myself. Maybe some of you have, but I'm still able to appreciate the grandeur, the majesty from this image. So I would literally, I was studying the text and I was looking at this picture and meditating on this passage we just read and looking at this picture. And the more I looked at that picture, the more sort of the, the, the grandeur of it became apparent to me, but also some of the detail. And so I, you can see these tiny little trees. You know, look in the upper right-hand corner. Those little bitty trees are actually huge trees. And if you would imagine yourself standing under those trees, those trees would tower over you, and then the mountain towers over the trees. So there's just this, this layers of majesty that's associated with something like this. This part of God's creation. Now, the reason I go there is I think this is the kind of passage that we come in front of this morning. So you imagine, um, you know, Lewis and Clark, who I don't know if they found this or not. I just imagine them finding this. You know, they found a lot of other cool things. And, and of course, they weren't humans, the first humans to, to discover these things. We know this now. But anyway, so they're coming through and they see this and they're just like, oh, wow. That's one of my goals this morning. I want you to have a little bit of that, oh, Wow. And if you didn't get it on the first reading, you know, that's really what a sermon is for, to help you get there, right? And so I've used this analogy before. As a preacher, I'm kind of just like a tour guide, all right? The real majesty and glory is in the text, pointing to the triune God. All I'm going to do is point out a few things to help us experience uh, the sense of awe this morning. And so that's what I want to do. Uh, let's begin with the big picture of what's happening here in this text. There's so many words here, and there's honestly so much theology, which we'll unpack a little bit in a minute, that I thought it may help you just to sort of see it in its simplest form, what's actually happening in these five verses. So I created a slide that's basically an outline of these five verses. So verse 4a, or the first half of verse 4, simply is John the writer saying, hey, I'm writing this, and I'm writing it to seven churches in Asia. Now, we're not going to talk about those churches this time. Next message, we'll get into who those churches were and where they are, and we'll have a map for you and all those kinds of things. Then the the next thing that happens, and this is the end of verse 4 all the way through verse 6, is he gives this kind of standard greeting, grace and peace, but, but he doesn't just stop at grace and peace. He goes on and on and on, and he essentially gives a triune or a Trinitarian description of God, Father, Spirit, and Son. And then when he gets to the Son, he sort of breaks out into this doxology, like glory to the Son, for here's what he's done for us. So he just can't help himself, right? He just is just overflowing as he's describing God. Then verse 7, he gives the thesis of the entire book of Revelation. Very simple, Jesus is coming back. I mean, so all the detail of Revelation, all the strangeness and the symbols and all this, you want to really want to boil it down? Here, here it is. Jesus is coming back. And, and we get there right here in verse 7 of chapter 1. And then, interestingly, in verse 8, God speaks. And God identifies himself. He, he almost like, it's almost like he interrupts John and says, I am And it's in this way that he's sort of giving his stamp or his blessing on the writing that John is about to go into with his vision. So that's the the big picture, 
All right, that's what this is. Now, let's look at some of the details because this is where it gets awe-inspiring. There may be more theology in these five verses than in any other short passage of Scripture that I can think of. And uh, I, I know some of you, like when, I, when you hear the word theology, you're like, yeah, yeah, let's talk about theology. I like this kind of thing. Others of you, you know, your eyes kind of roll in the back of your head and they gloss over and you're just like, okay, tell me something I can do this week, right? I want to explain how theology is eminently practical. All theology, any theology is always eminently practical. Let me explain what I mean. But, but first, let me tease out some of the big words. So if you were to go to seminary and you were to look at, hey, this is what I'm going to be studying for the next how many years of my life, you know, you're going to get to the, the systematic theology part of the seminary and it's going to, the courses are going to all be big words, all right? And I did not know what any of these words meant until I actually took the classes. But all of these theological categories are in Revelation 4 through 8. Like all the thi- everything I ever studied in seminary, I, I think, is, is somewhere in these five verses. Isn't that interesting? You've got theology proper which is the study of God, his nature and attributes. That's here. You've got Trinitarianism. I've already alluded to that. That's here. You've got Christology, the study of Jesus. Certainly here. Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. That's here too. Soteriology, which just means salvation, the study of how God has moved on our behalf to save us. That's here. Ecclesiology, study of the church. That's here. Eschatology, study of things to come. That's here. It's all here. And so you have this dense theological passage where John is just going at it theologically, and we're kind of left to wonder, okay, that looks beautiful, but what do we do with all this? Now, here's what I mean by your theology is eminently practical. You all have a theology. doesn't matter how long you've been in church, if you've ever taken any kind of theology class or not. Maybe this is your very first time in, in church this morning. You all have a theology. Because essentially, your theology is just whatever you believe to be true about God. And I would add in your relationship to God. So whatever you believe to be true about that, that's your theology. And your theology is always practical. In other words, your theology is always living itself out. It's always spilling over into your behaviors, into your actions. I want to read to you a quote from one of my favorite books. It's a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier. I've I've got a hunch a number of you have read it. Many of you probably have not. Now, this book was written uh, several decades ago, and you can tell because the chapter titles are actually descriptive and not just like one-word things that don't mean anything. You know, that's how books are written today. It's like, what do you actually mean? (laughs) This one, chapter one, let me read you the title. Why We Must Think Rightly About God. Now, that's a chapter title, okay? And so this is what Tozier goes. The very first line of this book is one of my favorite quotes, and then I'm going to keep reading after that. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show you that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. One more sentence I want to read. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. 
This is true. What comes into your mind when you think about God may be the most important thing about you. Your theology, you see. Now, I, I've got to distinguish, and it's very important in this message that I distinguish this, between your professed theology and what I want to call your functional theology. Let me explain what I mean. Your professed theology is what you say you believe. Your functional theology is what you actually deep down believe as shown by your attitudes and beliefs and behaviors. Tozier's talking about that kind of theology. So let me give you a couple examples, because some of you are thinking, wait a minute, you know, I, I, why, why would you say one thing and then actually deep down believe something else? And I'm not literally talking about, like, I actually think that, that the, the creeds of the church are lies. I'm talking more about, like, yeah, I guess I mentally assent to the creeds of the church, but I don't know, deep down, I really actually, honestly believe that, like, really. So, so let, me, let me tease this out a little bit. Here's something that we say we believe, okay, all of us in this room. We believe God created us and by extension, therefore, owns us. We believe that, right? No, no one's nodding their heads, but I'm going to take it by faith. You, you believe God created you. you know, m- most of us in the room would. And yet, how do we live? Do we not so often live like we're our own people? No one owns us. No one, including God, can tell us what to do, who to be, how we should feel, what we should believe. God doesn't have ultimate authority over our lives. You see, you see how this plays out? We believe one thing, yet we live like we believe something else. Let me give you another example. Man, this, this one's in me all the time. We say we believe that God accepts us and loves us through Jesus Christ. Completely. Right? And yet how we end up living our lives most times is we feel this sense of like, oh, he'll never forgive me for what I've done. Or I've got to work and prove to earn his love for me when it's already been given. So I want you to feel, for every person in this room, doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, you might, you might be an, an elder in this church, there is a gap between what you profess to believe and deep down where your heart is at, what you're living out. Your professed theology, your functional theology. You've got to feel this tension this morning. Okay, because our goal is to always bridge that gap. And this is John's goal for us as well. This is why I think John begins with this idea of blessed is he who reads and who hears and heeds, right? Obeys, lives out the things that are written. And then he goes straight into what? Theology. He wants us, by extension, you know, he was writing to this group of people, but by extension through, through the Spirit's authorship, it's us. He wants us to actually live out this theology. Now, rather than go through all the different theological categories and bore you with like seminary light this morning, some of you would love it, but others of you would be bored. What I, what I want to do instead is I want to boil down all the theology into two, I'm sorry, three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, last time I went way over and maybe that was just like a, a subconscious thought that I need to do two points instead of three. No, I'm going to still do three. I'll just talk faster. Uh, three main ideas. Like think of these as the summary of this, all this theology packaged into three core ideas. And I want to give you one more image. Think about these th- three theological ideas. May I say that four times fast? That's hard. Uh, of these are the anchor points of what we believe. So three theological anchor points. And uh, we'll talk about those one at a time. Um, I, I left out one thing I want to come to. Uh, a friend of mine, we're talking about some strategy for our church recently, and he reminded me of one of my uh, favorite business quotes by a guru named Peter Drucker. Drucker said this, culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
What he means by that is that the culture of your organization is always going to be stronger, more powerful, more formative than any strategy you may draw up on a whiteboard. All right, now I think that's true. I want to reword it for us along this, this idea of functional and professed theology. Your functional theology will always eat your professed theology for breakfast. What you actually believe will always and automatically overrule what you say you believe. So with that said, let's actually jump into what we should be believing theologically in these five verses. Uh, Look back at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace. Let's just stop there for a minute. This is a common greeting. It sounds pretty familiar. In Paul's epistles, he starts them the same way. This is who it's from. This is who it's to. This is a common way that letters would be written in this way. Notice, though, scripturally, the order of these words are always grace and then peace. In other words, it is the grace of God, the grace of Christ that enables you to have the peace, the shalom, the fullness, you see. So grace and peace. Here's where John departs from all the other greetings in the letters of the Bible, in the verses that follow when he gives the source of grace and peace. So usually Paul would say, grace and peace from Christ, or grace and peace from God the Father. Here's what John says, grace and peace From him, look at it in this text, from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here's some rich theology. This is the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian formulation, if you want to think about it that way. Now, the word Trinity does not appear in the Scripture, the actual English word Trinity. Where we get this idea from is passages like these, that we put them together as theologians, and we say, well, we know that the Father is God. We know that Jesus is God. We know that the Spirit is God. Therefore, we also know there's one God. Scripture teaches that too. Therefore, you've got one God in three persons. And here is a wonderful, beautiful example of this. Some of you are thinking, hold on, Rob, seven spirits. What are the seven spirits? Isn't that interesting? There's some debate on this, um, what John was actually describing that he saw. You know, he had this vision, and all he's doing here is describing. This is the majesty and beauty of the Trinity that I just beheld in this vision of the throne room. But most scholars, and and I agree with this, have landed on the idea that this is a way that John is describing the Holy Spirit. What do we know about the number seven? In Scripture, it's a symbol of completeness or perfection. It also is likely a reference to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, God, or the Spirit rather, is described in all these seven different adjectives, seven descriptors. So likely John is dipping back into that theology from the book of Isaiah and essentially saying the seven spirits, in other words, the sevenfold spirit, the complete, the perfect expression of God's spirit is part of the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, the Son. So this leads us into our first major theological idea, that first anchor point I was talking about. And and there's a lot of different ways you could say this idea, but but I want to read it this way. God is far more awe-inspiring than we realize. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Let's just talk about that one. I forget all the other stuff for a minute. How could a being have always been? How could a being always will be? 
Imagine a line, an invisible line in front of me, and, and between my two hands on this line is the entire history of humanity. Now, imagine this end of the line stretching out as far as you can see or picture. It's like, you know, Google Earth. When you start at Franklin and then you zoom out and you see Tennessee and the United States and the Earth and you go up into the stars. I mean, that, this, this line just keeps going. It never ends. Now, imagine that same line on the other side. Never, never ends. Keeps going this way. And our whole experience, all the history of humanity is right here. And you and me are a one particle of one dot somewhere along this little place. He is more awe-inspiring than we imagine. Look down at verse 8. God begins to speak, and he, this is what he, how he describes himself, the Alpha, the Omega. First letter of the Greek New Testament, or first letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha, Omega, and everything in between. Our English expression would be he's the A through Z, not just the A and the Z. He's the, the, whole, the whole thing, the A through the Z. And that's just the Father. That's just the description of God the Father. When John gets to the Son, he can't help but sort of just spill out into this doxology, this glory, because he's overwhelmed at who the Son is. And he gives them three titles or three descriptions. The faithful witness, this is in verse 5. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's unpack each of those just really briefly. Faithful witness. Jesus is the image of the Father. The exact representation of of his being. He is the faithful witness. What does a witness do? It testifies to what he has seen and heard. Witness also, even early in this time, carried the idea of a martyr. In fact, we get the English word martyr from the Greek word witness. Jesus did that. He testified to the Father, was killed because of that testimony through his words and his miracles, was put to death, was martyred because of his testimony, and of course, was raised up. Firstborn of the dead, obviously a, a reference to the resurrection. But what's so beautiful about this is he, he's not the only one who ever will rise from the dead. He's the firstborn and there will be many who follow him because Jesus' resurrection was more than just a one-time event in history. It was the first. It was the death of death so that all who follow Jesus will follow him also in resurrection. So you think Jesus' resurrection was splendid and it was? Just wait for the resurrection that is to come, where millions of people, Lord willing, billions of people, will be raised up in resurrection following Jesus. He is the firstborn of the dead. And then ruler of the kings of the earth. Every earthly ruler who lives, who has ever lived, and will live, will bow the knee to the king of kings. So think about the most powerful military or political leaders in human history. You know, just whoever comes to your mind, that person either willingly or unwillingly will fall prostrate before the king, will yield over all of his hubris, all of his so-called facade of power and recognition that Jesus is the king of kings. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. By the way, an interesting observation, these three descriptions of Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, Describe his life, his resurrection, and his second coming. Great three theological pegs when you think about who Jesus was. Now, whatever image comes to your mind when you think about Jesus, especially if it's kind of a weak you know, image of like in a picture of the, the, the pasty white European guy who's like meek and mild, um, Revelation will correct that for you. 
And the next message will we'll cover what, what John actually sees. When he sees the resurrected Jesus, he falls on his face like a dead man because he's seeing Jesus in his glorified form, right? And, and this is the man who was intimate with Jesus, who laid his head on his breast. So John knew intimate love and connection with Jesus, and he also knows this splendor and even terror of seeing Jesus in his glorified form. Now, I use that word terror intentionally, and I want to talk about this a little bit more. We don't like to admit it, but our functional theology about God oftentimes wants to make him a cuddly figure that we can ask for things that we want or need without ever falling on our face before him. Now, We'll, we'll get to the loving part of God in a minute because that is so important. But it's so important that our functional theology also holds what's literally true about God is there's two sides to these coins. He is immense, powerful. He could destroy the universe in one single word. There is a sense, and the Bible uses the word fear oftentimes in a positive sense. There is a sense that we should be terrified. We should fear this being who made us and can do anything he wants and could snap his finger and, and we would be gone. And scripture tells us he sustains our breath through his spirit. You see, there should be a, a godly sense of terror and fear as we think about the beauty and majesty of God. That's why John falls on his face. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips, and I've seen God. How could this be? There is this sense that we have lost in our functional theology that God is far more awe-inspiring than we imagine him to be. And what I hope this passage will do, among other things, is bring that back a little bit into your consciousness. Now, I don't know if there's ever been a people more, um, I'll just use the word, arrogant and self-reliant and independent than 21st century Western people. And, and we can't say, well, that's them out there. We're part of this. Like, we're born into this. But because of our prosperity, because of our technology, because of our entertainment, because of our comfort, we lose sight of the fact that we're actually dependent upon our creator for everything. I, it, I won't ask for a, a raise of hands, but I know, I know y'all are in the same place with me in, in this room where, where I don't often deep down believe that I actually need God. Like all the time need God. And if you're not sure whether or not that's true for you, then just look at your prayer life. A, a weak or sporadic prayer life is a sure sign of someone who doesn't deep down in their functional theology believe they really need God. And all God's people said, ouch, <laughs> myself included. In fact, I told the, the congregation in the first service, I don't know that I've ever taught a message that was more personally convicting to me than this sermon I'm preaching this morning. I'm not different than you. There's a gap in my functional theology, what I deep down really believe and what I profess to believe and what I, what I know to be true up here and what I actually live out. Let's keep going because uh, I want to get to a couple other places. Um, this idea that God is far more awe-inspiring than you imagine him to be, I, I want to I say this about this. I've got three daughters. So my oldest daughter is 11. I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. They think I'm really strong. Like, they think I'm really fast. 
they think that, that I can dominate in any sport because the reality is when I'm playing with them, I can dominate, right? Now, what they haven't really understood yet is like, I'm five foot nine. I don't work out. I'm out of shape, right? And so when I'm playing basketball with them in the front driveway, I feel like LeBron James, right? I'm just like dunking on them. I like that six foot goal that we've you know, put down. Now, all I have to do is go to any gym, okay? And then I realize, man, I'm not fast. I'm not strong. I can't play basketball. I mean, I really stink at basketball if I'm really honest with you. Here's what we do in our functional theology is we tend to compare ourselves, not to God, we compare ourselves to other people around us. And you're like, man, I'm nailing it. Like, I am righteous, I am secure, I am wealthy, I'm a great dad, I'm a great father, God must be kind of proud of me, and we would never say all this out loud. It's because who we're comparing ourselves to. John gets to compare himself to the one who is and was and will always be. And he invites us to stand before that mountain, to stand before that ocean. I love this quote by Phillips Brooks. He was a 19th century preacher. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. Men and women, we need to do that more often. Because when you do that, when you stand before that, that half dome at Yosemite, when you stand before the ocean, maybe when you get in an airplane, you fly up 10,000 feet and you're looking down at all the small little things, you're like, I am tiny. I am tiny. You are tiny. God is big. You are small. That's our first anchor point. Now, if I left you with that, that'd be true. That'd be, that maybe be, maybe be a good sermon. I don't know. But I want to take you to the next place that John goes. And we find our second anchor point in, in this doxology of where he just praises Jesus. Listen to this. Uh, second half of verse 5. To him, capital H, talking about Jesus who is God here. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, he's moving in a different direction now. He first said, there is this triune being who is and was and is to come, and he's majestic and powerful, and I fell at my face when I, when I saw him. But he loves us. He's, he's moved on our behalf. So here's how I'd articulate this second key idea. In Christ, God loves us and has moved toward us for our good. The same God who is terrifying loves you through Christ. Revelation 1.5 has the gospel in 14 words. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's a great thing to memorize and meditate on. John is using a word picture here. He's, he's talking about imprisonment and freedom. I don't know if you've ever visited someone in prison or visited someone in jail. I've done that several times. There's always one thing on their mind. No matter what you're talking to them about, uh, no matter what they're doing during the day, their confinement is always on their minds. It can't not be. And yet you and me, when we think about sin, when we think about our sin in, in our true deep down heartfelt functional theology, 
most of us tend to have sin all wrong in our heads. We're not, we're not thinking about it as confinement, and I want to explain what I mean. Most of us in our functional theology believe one of two things towards sin, and here they are. Number one, you either believe that your sin is not really a big deal, you know, deep down. You might, you might say it is at church, but deep down, it's just not that big a deal. Come on. Or some of you think your sin is so bad that God couldn't want you. Now, here's true theology about sin. Your sin is a huge deal. Even the smallest sin is rebellion against your creator. It's a big deal. But it's not only a big deal because it's rebellion against the creator, but it enslaves you. Your sin is your confinement. Now, what do I mean by that? God created you to live out of true flourishing that he's made you to be. So in all of your relationships, in your calling, in your giftedness, he's called you to live as a fully free human being flourishing in his good creation. And yet because of sin, and you know, Adam's sin, human being's sin, but also your sin, you're constantly confining yourself. You're constantly restricting your relationships. You're constantly polluting this water that God has birthed you to live in, which is called his spirit in communion with him. You're constantly stepping away from that. You're constantly going away. And it's creating these walls around you. So your marriage can't be fully the way God intended it to be. Your other relationships can't be. You can't live out life with energy and fullness in your career. You can't love your kids the way they're meant to be. You can't help your aging parents and live into them and help them the way that you're called to because you're selfish, because you're sinful. And I am too. Our sin confines us from living out who God designed us to be. And within that confinement that should be ever conscious to our minds, Jesus comes with the key. And he says, I have unlocked the door. And if you would trust me enough to follow the path I walk, you can come out from that confinement. Now, it doesn't mean you're ever going to be perfect. But what would it look like for you in your life to say, although the confines of my cell are somewhat comforting because it's really all about me, I'm going to risk following Jesus into the great unknown of the way he designed me to live in all of my relationships. Jesus says this about our sin. I know about your sin. And that's why I came. I found you. Yes, I see you and you sin, but I've come so you may be free. And we're invited into that. I don't have time to unpack these two word pictures of kingdom and priests, only, only to say this. The idea of kingdom is a corporate concept that we are called to rule together underneath the sovereign rule of God. We do that in part now. We will do that in full when he comes again. And then the idea of priests, you know, most of us in the room are like, I don't want to be a priest. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible life, you know, and I have fun, I want to enjoy life. That's not what's going on here. The idea of priests is you have access into the throne room. Right? You can waltz into the Holy of Holies because Jesus came and flung open the doors of your confinement. What comes into your mind when you think about God? I want you to see how these first two theological anchor points work together. On the one hand, God is far more awe-inspiring and terrifying than you imagine. But on the other hand, through Jesus He loves you passionately. He has pursued you. He has wiped away your guilt and flung open the doors to the throne room. You see how we hold these things in tension? 
We dare not err too far on either side. We must hold both. They must sink deep down into our lived-out theology, not just what we say and think in church and the games we play here on Sunday mornings. Now there's one more. Honestly, that could be enough, right? In fact, there's this beautiful psalm. I don't really have time for this, but Psalm 62, 11, look it up sometime. David is talking about, like, of everything I know about God, there's just two things that matter the most, that you, O Lord, are strong and that you, O God, are loving. That's what he says. Like the, 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 for David, those were his two anchor points, the man after God's own heart. But John goes on. John says there's one more anchor point that you need to have in your theology, and it's this, that Jesus is coming back. He's returning. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Let's pick this apart for just a minute. Notice it says he's coming with the clouds, not on the clouds. Right, so this idea of like Jesus riding down the clouds with like a you know the chariot kind of thing—that's just no. That actually comes from Baal worship. That's how Baal is described: riding on the clouds. Jesus is coming with the clouds. That's the idea of his presence. So all throughout the Old Testament, the cloud represented blessing, like rain, but it also represented God's presence invading the tabernacle, overfilling, overflooding, leading the people. Clouds are good things. So when Jesus comes back, it's his presence. People will literally see him, and the presence of God will invade the earth like a cloud. He's coming with the clouds. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Isn't that interesting? Is that the way you picture it going down? Mourning, tears. I wrestled with this this week. Here's where I landed. Jesus' second coming will be the climactic moment in human history. The climactic moment. Like, whatever happened to the dinosaurs, if that was like some like, asteroid that hit or what ice age or whatever, that's going to be nothing compared to when Jesus comes back. Like, the, the greatest moments in human history, nothing. E- even Jesus' resurrection will pale in comparison to his second coming as far as the epic nature of how it's going to affect the entire cosmos. It'll be the epic moment. And if you've ever experienced an epic moment in your life, it brings out emotion. Whether it's good or bad, think about the birth of a child, think about the death of a loved one. Think about maybe, maybe when, you're, when you're saying your vows with your spouse, it's emotional moments. The entire creation will experience this pull of their heart almost splitting in two, and it'll go one of two directions. It'll be in terror and fear and guilt and regret, or it'll be toward excitement and joy, and either way it's going to produce tears. All the nations will mourn. It's be an emotional moment for all of us. And here's the thing about this, men and women. We have the opportunity now to decide which side of that emotion your heart's going to go toward. If those are going to be fe- tears of regret and terror or if they're going to be tears of joy and completeness and wholeness. So it is to be, amen, John says the same thing twice in that phrase. Y'all may know amen means let it be. So it is to be. Let it be. He's just emphasizing it. Like this is happening as sure as I'm standing here right now, as sure as this podium is wooden. This is coming. This is happening. Now, why does the second coming of Christ need to be so forefront in our minds? So if I'm going to boil down our theology to three anchor points, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say God is huge, You are loved. Jesus is coming again. Why would that third one be so important to to hold with these other two? I want to just give you two reasons. There's a bunch of reasons. I want to give you just two real quick. 
Number one, so you can be prepared. And I, I, I want to do something that we don't do every, every week here at Fellowship, but I've got to do it this morning. It's just right here in the text. I want to speak to those of you that don't actually believe in Jesus. I want to speak to those of you that maybe you come to church, maybe you've always come to church, um, maybe not, but like you don't really know where you stand with God. Like you're just not sure of it. You're not really sure what you really believe deep down. I, and I just want to say, look, that's okay. Like I'm glad you're here. And I want to say something else to you. There's no way that I could use any words of any sermon to convince you that this is true. I, di- I just can't. That's not something that any man can do. But what I am called to do in my role as a teacher of God's word is I'm called just to proclaim what the Bible says is true. And honestly, God can and will move in your heart to bring you to him. And here's what the Bible says is true, that if you have never gotten to a place in your life where you have thrown yourself under the covering of the mercy of God, if you've never gotten to a place in your life where you would say, I have rebelled, but I'm throwing myself at the feet of God and asking for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If you've never gotten to that place, you should be terrified at the second coming of Jesus. And here's why. Because he will give you what your heart desires, and that is to be separate from him. He will give that to you. If you're one of those people that your whole life you just really kind of just don't want to really have anything to do with God, you want to just be independent, do your own thing, you don't want to live under his authority, he'll say yes to that request. And you'll get to do that for the rest of eternity. And it will not be fun. You don't want to know what life would be like if God were to withdraw his spirit. You don't want to know what it'd be like to be alone apart from God's grace. Now, I know some of you are thinking, man, he sounds like a 1960s preacher here. It's old school in a way, but you know, it shouldn't be old school. It's in scripture. It's in scripture. And so what I preach to you this morning, the authority of God's word, not my own opinions, right? Is that Jesus is coming back and you have the opportunity now to prepare. And if you've never gotten that right, you just do that this morning. And all, all you have to do is just like, God, I've been in rebellion. Maybe it's subtle. Maybe it's not subtle. I don't know. I don't know your heart. But we've all been there. And say, I throw myself under the covering of the blood of Jesus. That's all. That's all. And then you can have confidence according to God's word that you are saved, that you are rescued, that you are plucked out from a dire future into a glorious future. That's what is in store for you. So number one, keep the second coming of Jesus, top of mind, so you can be prepared. Number two, and this applies to everybody in the room, keep the second coming of Jesus top of mind so you can persevere. You can persevere. If life on this broken planet feels kind of easy and simple to you, then you've either not lived very long or you've been fooling yourself. And here's some of the ways we tend to fool ourselves, men and women, is... We give ourselves over to piddly entertainment and the pursuit of comfort, which is all just a facade. And we stay away from hard relationships. And we don't want to step into pain because we're not sure we can handle it. And we go about our lives just sort of insulating ourselves from real life, right? And when we do that, we're not living out who God had called us to be. 
But when you step into that, and you take risks, and you believe Jesus at his word, and you start praying that your professed theology will become functional theology, then you know what happens? I I can't lie. Life gets hard. Life gets painful. You realize, I've got relationships in my life that are broken, and for whatever reason, God's not healing. God's not working them. You realize, the the loved ones that I've given myself over over to will get sick, their health will fail them, and they will die, and even myself. We will all get sick and our health will fail and we will die and that is scary. Life is hard, but it won't always be this way. This is the second coming of Jesus. Why we need to remember this. We will look back at these 40 years, 50 years, 80 years, however long gives you. Maybe, maybe God doesn't give you even those. You will look back on these and, and, and scripture says, It'll be like the pain of childbirth that you will hardly even remember. The new life that follows will be so complete and full and long and everlasting. And you'll say, I I think that was hard. I think that relationship was difficult. I I think that loss, that death, that separation was hard. (sighs) It's a memory. It's distant. I I hardly even remember what it was like to go through that. The second coming of Jesus puts life into perspective. That's what I'm saying. So here's how I will boil down our theology this morning. God is big. You are loved. Jesus is coming again. Now the reality of the situation is, for everybody in the room, your functional theology falls short of truly believing even those three things to the depths of your soul. Doesn't it? In big ways and in small, there's parts of us that don't fully believe. Here's the good news. Jesus says all it takes is a little bit of faith. (laughs) Mustard seed size faith. You You don't have to feel the depth of truth of all of these and be living them out in fullness and completion. In fact, you won't until you're glorified. All you need to do is say, all right, I believe these things are true. Father, help me in my unbelief. That's the thing about theology. You don't hear it once. You don't learn it once. You don't even believe it once and you're done. The act of shifting from professed theology to lived out functional theology is the process of sanctification. It's the process of getting to know God. It's the process of walking with him. It's the process of learning to get face to face with him in communion with him and live life from that place. And this is what we do together in community. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings to remind us of things that are true and pray that we will begin to believe even more deeply than we do now. I want to read you the words to this song. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand again because we're going to sing. What heart could hold the weight of your love? No heart could hold the weight of his love. None. What heart could know the heights of your great worth? No one can. Not truly. Not fully. What eyes could look on your glorious face shining like the sun? That's the description that John will give of Jesus when he sees him face to face in his glorified form. His face was like the sun and he fell flat on him on his own face. You are holy, 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 God most high, 
God most worthy. Let's sing these words together.